the Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome back to the Ortho PAC. Today we have Dr. Virginia Casey. Dr. Casey is a pediatric orthopedist who practices at Ortho Carolina. She recently gave a couple of presentations at our Charlotte meeting, and she's a great clinician, very much a PA advocate. So good afternoon, Dr. Casey, and thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Today I'd like to go through some of the more common pediatric upper extremity fractures that I see in clinic. So let's talk about forearm and wrist and hand. I think both bone forearm fractures are usually obvious on an x-ray, and can these be treated non-operatively? So for wrist, almost everything's non-operative. Basically, you just need the wrist to look like a wrist, and kids can remodel it. So you can have 100% displacement, like radius can look like this. And they're just another good study just came out. Um, it's not published yet, but it was presented at our conference this past May that showed that actually trying to reduce the bayonet apposition distal radius fractures resulted in worse outcomes. Like some of them had worse residual angulation than the ones that you just left bayoneted that had good alignment. So if the wrist looks like a wrist, even though it's kind of swollen, but if it's not crooked, then just leave it alone. Um, if it's crooked, make it straight. And you can just do that. Like we do this in the office all the time. They need a splint anyway. It's gonna to hurt to put the splint on. So we actually put them in a cast acutely and then univalve the cast. And that works really well because it's just one touch, one torture time, and then you're done for a long time. And I wait till the cast is almost dry. And then I push on the wrist to, to line it up. And of course you need everybody on board. You don't lie to anybody. And some families will not accept that. And so if it's angulated more than 30 degrees, then those go to the operating room. But if it's less than 30 degrees and they don't want any kind of push, well, it'll remodel. Um, in most kids. I tend to get people on board for a quick push. Um, we, we tell them it's going to hurt and it hurts for about five seconds really badly and then it eases off for the next two minutes and then they're pretty much how they were when they came in. And that works really well for lots of folks. I'd say the majority, but never ever lie to the children. Like never ever tell them, oh this won't hurt. Tell it like it is, but tell it like it is right before you do it. Don't let them stress about it for 10 minutes. Tell it like it is and then and then do it. Okay, very commonly I see a Salter 1 or Salter 2 distal radius or torus fracture. Assuming no displacement, do you ever treat these with a cock-up splint or is it always casted or is that just a case-by-case -case basis? Okay, so torus fractures or buckle fractures, those do not need a cast. If there's no, if it's just a simple buckle fracture, not what I call a buckle plus where it's kind of half buckle, half all the way through, but a true buckle fracture, that's a brace and they wear the brace for three to four weeks. If they're non-tender, they're done. They don't even need a follow-up. They are done. How often do Salter 1 disradius fractures lead to premature physeal closure? And are there ways to predict this or signs that are more worrisome? Salter 1 fractures, if it's like the kind where there's a completely normal x-ray and a normal child, like not swollen, and you squeeze on their growth plate and they say, ow, treat that like a torus. If it's displaced and it had to be reduced, that's the one that's at risk for growth arrest. And the risk is still pretty low. I think it's like 7%. But if I have a displaced Salter 1 that had to be reduced, one or two, then I follow those with an appointment at six months to make sure that they're growing properly. 
you can't tell before then. Okay, moving on to hand and finger fractures. There are any number of fractures I can think of, but probably the most common one that I see is the teenage boy with a boxer's fracture. Those, you just really mostly have to educate them on that they're going to lose their knuckle. So when they make a fist, it's going to look like they don't have a knuckle anymore if you can't get it fully reduced. I don't feel strongly about whether you fully reduce or not. It depends on how much they care, how it looks cosmetically. So these function really well. Um, they have to be really angulated to not function really well. You definitely want to make sure that there's no rotational problem. So you have to make sure that when they make a fist, and you can make them make a fist by squeezing their forearm, you can get that finger to come down a little bit to make sure that there's no rotation. But as long as there's no rotation, and in boxers there usually isn't, you can just protect them from themselves. And that's what they need anyway, because these are the kids that hit a wall or you know made a poor decision. Usually, sometimes you get a boxer's fracture from something innocent, but a lot of times they've hit something. So I will either put them in an ulnar gutter splint or an ulnar gutter cast or just a long uh, cast that protects the metacarpals, a regular short arm cast that just extends a little bit farther, kind of like a poorly applied regular short arm cast. The ones you would critique and say, oh, you didn't leave enough finger room. Um, that's the kind you would put on for a metacarpal fracture. A second common one is a fingertip crushing injury with or without a nail bed injury. Listeners about how you manage these. So with nail beds, if you're going to fix those, you need to do it right, right then. Like we don't sit on nail beds. And so just depending on how old the child is and if they can tolerate it. So if you have a tuft fracture and a big old hematoma under the nail, then that needs to be dealt with like within 24 hours. That's considered an open fracture. And the nail bed repair does better if you go ahead and, and get to it. So if you aren't comfortable doing those and to do them, some children can do it. It just depends on the age of the kid. Just with a hematoma block, I mean, a, a digital block. And, you know, I've done several of these in the office. It really just depends on the kid. And that's fingers and toes. So we see it sometimes in toes that, that need a little bit of addressing, but more commonly that I'm going to repair a nail bed in a finger. A lot of times you're going to let a nail bed in a toe, not, you know, not worry about that. Another thing, when should we be suspicious of non-accidental trauma, i.e. physical abuse? That's a great question. It needs to be on your radar always when you're taking care of children. And basically you will get that spiny sense. If the story doesn't make sense, that's your number one tip off. If nobody can explain why this child has a fracture, and so sometimes it does present not in the emergency department. Fortunately, most of the time it presents in the emergency department and you have other resources available to say, you know what, it's our routine for every child under 12 months. And actually, just so you know, anybody under three that gets admitted with a femur fracture gets an NAT workup, at least by the social work service. So everybody gets a touch. And that's really nice because then you can say, you know, this is routine. And that way parents don't get defensive and everybody realizes this is just for the safety of the child. So that's kind of a good speech to have on hand when you are seeing a child that you're like, huh, this doesn't make sense. You don't have to seem aggressive to the family. You can say, oh, thanks so much for bringing her in. This is what we see. And when we see this in this age, we always have to go through this protocol. So if your spine sense is up, that's how you present it to the family. And we actually just had one in the office the other day where they're bringing this not 10 month old in with a fracture. And it's amazing how they never have an accurate, like they don't have a story. They just say they don't know. It's really bizarre. They don't even come up with anything in general. So 
the ones that say, oh, I was going down the stairs and I fell. And when I fell, I landed on the baby and then they wouldn't use their leg or whatever. That's probably what happens. But the ones that come in and they're like, no, we don't know anything. I was just changing the diaper and it starts to hurt. And I noticed they weren't using it. That's the one you tend to worry about. But you have to think about it in, in everybody, even the ones with the story. And I think the way you phrase it is really important that this is something that we check routinely. And then if you have any worry at all, you send that child to the emergency department right then. That's what we did in the office the other day. Like, no, sorry, we just have to go through this to, for the safety of the kid. These, this is the protocol that we follow. And if 80% of kids under 12 months of age are NAT, you know, that's, that's a big percentage. This is not the toddler fracture. This is not, you know, this is different. Toddler fractures are super common and, and the stories match, right? They had a little twisting injury. They were on the slide and then they screamed and then they wouldn't walk. That story makes sense. But when they tell you, we don't know how it happened. They just all of a sudden we noticed that there's some swelling or they wouldn't walk. And, and that's when you send them to the emergency. All right. Once again, I truly appreciate you taking your time and sharing your expertise to discuss these injuries and management of these injuries. Thanks so much. I had a great time. Hope you guys learned something. Thank you for joining the Ortho PAC podcast. Registration is now open for our 22nd annual meeting. This is our annual fall meeting and will be August 22nd through the 26th at the Sheridan Denver Downtown Hotel. I look forward to seeing you there.